pilot. Pilot? What's a pilot? Well, the way they pick TV shows is they make one show. That show's called a pilot. And they show that one show to the people who pick shows. And on the strength of that one show, they decide if they want to make more shows. Some get chosen and become television programs. Some don't. Become nothing. She started one of the ones that became nothing. Cop genre has been around for a while on television, right? These police dramas, they're very compelling. I feel like over the decades, the genre has evolved in an interesting way. I think when you look back at shows from the late 80s through the 90s, these police dramas had a little more grit to them. Shows like Law and Order, um, L.A. Law, uh, NYPD Blue, I think they kind of had more realism. And uh, in more recent years, I feel like these shows, these procedurals, definitely feel way more produced, overproduced, I would argue. They seem very much more, like, shiny in a way. They don't, they don't have that, that feel of realism that they used to anymore. I, I don't know if you've noticed the same trend. I wish I was a bigger fan or just, like, I got into cop dramas a lot more like i always enjoyed like putting law and order on in the background when especially when i I feel like we all a lot of people did that in college uh but i never really watched i was too young for nypd blue i even doing research i had no idea homicide life on the street was a 90s show i always thought that wasn't like a late 80s early 90s show yeah it's like a mid to late 90s series I, i had no idea that was even on but i I think I always just tend to go like, okay, they're all this, they're all going to follow the same tropes at some point. But I, as I get older, I start to see what rises to the top and why, like, oh, I see why people liked NYPD Blue. Uh, I see, I'm hearing now, especially with the passing of Andre Brower, not only. Uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but Homicide Life on the Street, which I would say is a precursor to the show that we're going to talk about in a way. Exactly. Same creator, right? And I think you mentioned Law & Order. Law & Order SVU specifically was a show that a lot of people our age watched either on syndication or on streaming. And I think that show follows a progression that's kind of like case in point for what I'm saying here with this trend where the early seasons felt more grounded and they certainly were very shocking, and they managed to keep upping the ante throughout the 2000s. But then in the 2010s, with some casting changes, and then just as it became sort of this um, show that the network would rely heavily on, I mean, the franchise in general, it definitely became something that was a little more removed from reality. You know, it just it just felt very more formulaic, and after like you know 20-something years of SVU and... 30 years of the franchise as a whole, right? Like you're, there's only so many stories are, that are left to tell, but you're right. You're ha- You're happy that the headlines keep making up good stories. <laughs> right, right. You have to keep relying on real life situations to draw inspiration from. Uh, but you know, the show we are talking about today that you were alluding to is The Wire. Way down in the hole. Way down in
And that show kind of comes in the middle here, right? This premieres in 2002 and definitely is maybe the epitome of a realistic crime drama. And yeah, it's not just a police drama too, because you know half the characters are on the side of law enforcement, and the other half are on the side of this, uh, you know, criminal organization here. And you know, there's a lot of it's it's interesting to kind of split the narrative in half that way, because you know, typically with the crime genre, you either focus on one side or the other, right? Like with the Sopranos, we're mainly focused here on the criminals. And with these other shows we mentioned, right, you're going to mostly focus on the police. So to really kind of evenly divide the story is very unique and almost kind of daring because it's almost at times confusing who you want to, I want to say root for, but, you know, who is good necessarily? Who is bad? It becomes more ambiguous. No, it's, uh, it, it, the more you think about it, it's more like a societal drama only in the fact that yes the first season starts out with the cops and the the gang the gang guys uh but you know we explore in other seasons we explore school we explore journalism we explore uh the docs in season two like it just kind of branches out and on both sides on every side really you see the morally gray like why they're doing what they're doing and you know everyone is trying to everyone thinks they're in the right they're just trying to really a survive and be live like you know make enough money to survive and right. they're not thinking uh they're not thinking that they're bad but like you just like it, it kind of becomes a giant machine like all these institutions like Everyone just kind of clocks in and just know every it, there's a, a community within communities. You know what I mean? Right. I, I think the key word there is institutions, because in this show, as well as in the world we live in, in real life, uh, so much of our decisions are shaped by the institutions that we're in and surround us and, and run the society we live in. So I think that when it comes to a realistic portrayal of a city and all the different aspects of it, these different institutions, you know, like it, it can come off as very cynical and pessimistic, but you know, that's kind of the world we live in. There's a lot to look at and re-examine and be critical of in, in real life. And so the show is reflective of that. And funny enough, you know, with homicide, uh, life in the street, same creator that was on NBC. And from what I read, you know, David Simon, he came into conflict a lot with NBC executives for that pessimistic tone. Because I think generally networks, even with these gritty cop dramas, they still try to have some sense of optimism, some sense of hopefulness, even when, say, in a Law & Order episode, justice isn't served, right? Like the guy, the guy who, as an audience we know is guilty, gets acquitted for some reason. Uh, they still try to instill in its audience that, you know, good will prevail eventually. But this show, The Wire, doesn't necessarily have that same optimism. I think because of uh, the layout of in the way he lays out the city of Baltimore, it's hard to find the hope. But the, it's there. I mean, it's not always obvious, but 
if you were to continue along with this series, there are some there are some glimmers of hope in it, but th it's also life. Like life, like this show, like prestige television, started to become. It doesn't owe you the audience anything. It like it right. It, every decision is made for the best of the uh, for the betterment of the story, but also. Life can happen, especially with the wire. Life can happen like that. Like anything can happen randomly, and like there's no rhyme or reason to it. Right. Life doesn't happen mapped out like it is yeah. in a writer's room per se. It doesn't always have a nice happy ending to it. And I think that kind of leads into the next thing I want to talk about too. So this show is one of those classic, you know, heard great things, haven't seen it kind of shows. Right. It has. It was a critical darling. But it is, I think, commonly known as the best show that no one watched. It wasn't even that critical. Like, I don't think it was – like, it was – no one – no actor was nominated for Emmys, and that's a right. travesty. Like, but it was nominated for a writing here and there, but it really didn't win. It didn't, but I think in retrospective – In retrospect, yeah. It's now considered to be one of the greatest TV shows of all time, and we've mentioned this on our previous podcast that time is usually the best judge of a work film or television and this is another case too where the wire is competing against other hbo shows that are also critical darling so you know it was just a really great time and you can appreciate the work without necessarily yeah it, if it didn't have all of the accolades per se but you know the fact that the show again didn't really have that that sense of optimism you know it it, it wasn't a show that you could say gave its audience a sense of escapism right it, this is the show that maybe reminds you of the world you live in it doesn't distract you from it and so it's it's like one of those shows where it didn't have as much of a broad appeal unfortunately but it did find its audience and it had a strong following but you know unfortunately it didn't really have that that again that broad appeal that um you know maybe other shows even on hbo we're able to to draw in. I will admit it is a tough sell. It is a very tough sell um, because I – when I was really starting to embrace my love of TV and I started watching Sopranos and you, know, you read that The Wire is also one of the best shows of all time, I remember trying to watch it and I, I was in my 20s, early 20s and frankly like it just – I w it was confusing. It was overwhelming. It felt like uh, uh, I was reading a newspaper or doing a book report, kind of. And, you know, you're kind of, you know, outside of the main characters, you're trying to keep track of just everything. Now that I'm in my 30s, I like reading about policy. I like, I can keep track of characters. I can have a sense of what's going on uh, in terms of like, Plot and you know when I rewatched uh, Sopranos, I had a better sense of what was happening with like the dealings and everything. I had I instead of that just being like window pane, I just I have a better sense and I do. I will say like it is a tough sell, but once you really get going with this show, it is an honor to just watch. I like and it it just I totally see why. It is considered the top tier television. And funny enough, I was finishing it just as we were 
starting the podcast. Oh, that's funny. So that so that's where I was at. Like I really decided to just sit down and watch, and it was uh, as much as I loved it. It was also kind of tragic in the sense that like there are times I'm like, oh, like two of the great actors on the show passed away. Right. Uh, M- Michael K. Williams and recently Lance Reddick. And you're just going like, oh, my God. Like, it just makes you – made me appreciate this show even more. But, yeah, no, it is kind of – it is probably the best cr- uh, crime for la- uh, crime show because it just kind of shows you as is. Right. And I, I feel the same way as you in terms of giving this show a shot when I was younger – in my 20s and not really fully able to grasp all the nuances of the show and now that i have a better sense now in my 30s of the world around me it does make more sense you know i think the show requires more involvement from the viewers right oh, it's yes. not a show you can passively watch it's kind of like active listening you need to be actively watching when the show is happening because there is it is very dense the the plot and there is a lot of explaining of how the police operate and understanding how that institution is structured understanding how the the crime organization functions you know there there is a lot that you need to pay close attention to and you know certainly when i was trying to watch this years ago i would have to rewind a lot be like wait a minute like i i'm not quite getting it but uh, watching at least the first episode again this time, it definitely seemed to click more, and my my interest has been peaked in a way that it hadn't been uh, back you know seven eight years ago. So I'm always like, let the confusion wash over you, and then because you'll be like, oh, this who's this character now, and then don't go rewind because that might be answered within a scene or two. Like allow yourself to be confused a little bit, because yeah, you it's it's not going it's not giving you exposition it's not giving you names it's just it's a it's almost like you're playing catch up a little bit. Right. It's it's more naturalistic that way that they aren't explaining things in a convoluted way. There's no obvious exposition where a character is asking something for the audience's sake, but you get it contextually as it goes yeah it's like it clicks eventually if, oh yeah again you are you're putting in the effort as a as an audience member to understand this world better yeah i would say like it's it, you're allowed to be confused within like the first couple of episodes but then you know you start to see these characters more and more and you're like okay and then you're rooting for them or you hate them and yeah no it's uh i mean to allowed, be fair yeah in a, in a broad sense, I don't think it's hard to understand what's happening in a in you know in a larger oh, yeah. scale picture. I just think understanding the smaller steps of you know, even in the first episode of why characters feel a certain way or react a certain way, yeah, you know, that might be unclear at first if you don't really have an understanding of how bureaucracy and politics are something that people deal with in law enforcement on a daily basis, right? Like that's an element that's important to understand. If you don't, then yeah, you might not be sure why a character is getting flack from another character, for example. Uh, but although, again, like on a bigger scale, you, you kind of get the idea of what the main characters are trying to accomplish. Um, but let's take it from the beginning here, Keith. If you want to take us a little more into detail with the 
pilot history. Uh, will do. Well, the pilot is called uh, The Target, and it's a story by David Simon and Ed Burns. And that's a name that – those are names that we'll meet along – like we'll, I'm sure this won't be the last time that we see them. But it premiered June 2nd, 2002, a day after I turned 12. It's, uh, th- it's that summer. There must be – it's that must be that 13 weeks, like yeah. a good summer show. And it premiered to 3.7 million. Decent. And I think it like, – unfortunately, like, you know, it, it had a strong viewing – and then slowly it kind of – I think they were – I think even Simon has said like he feels lucky to have like the full five seasons. Yeah, I think looking at the history of the, the ratings, which for HBO at the time I think was a little more estimated. Yeah. But still you could see the decline there, and I think by season five you had less than a million people watching per episode. Now uh, before we get into like the backstory, you know, I know we don't really uh, talk about directors that much, but I was kind of – shocked and just having watched the show already that this episode the pilot was directed by clark johnson now that might not mean anything but if if you were to watch the show he will become an actor in season five. Oh, interesting very interesting and he's directed and act and acted in stuff of, of homicide too so that's where he kind of came in okay but uh but for david simon he was a reporter at the Baltimore Sun for 12 years, 82 to 95. And what really kind of gave him – like that's how he got to see – he got to be on the ground almost. Or at least he got to talk to cops. He got he talked to politicians. And he spent a year shattering, shadowing the Baltimore Police Department and in the homicide unit. And that's what led him to writing his first book. Homicide, A Year on the Killing Streets, and that went on to be a bestseller. And, of course, that ended up being the basis of the show Homicide, Life on the Streets. Right. That's interesting that he was able to shadow uh, the homicide unit of the Baltimore police. I'm not sure how that's arranged. Like, if he had maybe some small job on the books that allowed him to do this and spend time with the police. From what I understand, too, there were even a couple times where he assisted in an arrest but still, from the perspective uh, as a writer, you know he he was uh, spending time with with uh, this unit here, and again, I, I'm not sure how common that is and how that was arranged. But it's interesting. He basically had uh, a firsthand, you know, basically doing research. Right, this is like firsthand experience, getting to know this world, and that's why it does feel so authentic because he did live in this world for so long. And it all this all this backstory leading up to it. Like you see it on screen, like you see the conversations, you see the the procedure, you see just it, it the real. I think realism was very important to him in this, and it shows. Yeah, I think it was some of those things where he thought, yeah, he he saw so much in his time, not just as a journalist, but with the police and in the city of Baltimore, and these were stories that weren't really in the mainstream. And, and a lot of the stories that he would present through his books, through his, his series are, you know, not only are they very real stories, but they're not commonly told stories. Yeah. So when he first came into contact with HBO, it's because his next book was called The Corner, A Year in the Life of Inner City Neighborhood. And that, that was adapted into a miniseries in 1999. And you always like 
of course HBO still does miniseries, but HBO was HBO was very known outside of maybe Sopranos and Sex and the City. They were known for their TV movies and miniseries, and yeah, this uh, this kind of was like a test for The Wire. In a yeah, way. I'm not familiar with this miniseries, but yeah, like you said, I am aware that HBO had a lot of these TV events, and they would still do that from time to time. Uh, but I guess it, it makes sense that as the network was trying out more original content, they would start with these more short-term projects before venturing out into the longer series. Now he did, yeah, he didn't um, want to do just a cop series. He wanted to account on how different communities live together or don't live together, and so he worked with his partner Ed Burns, not the actor. If people, uh, it's another guy, Ed Burns, who. Uh, he was a former police detective in Baltimore. He worked for both homicide and narcotics, and he was also a public school teacher. So that just – that is the perfect person to work with if you want to write a show about Baltimore. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean those are the two departments, narcotics and homicide, that the show is going to focus on. And here's another person who has just really gone to know this city so well from multiple perspectives – like it, and like it totally i didn't know he was a public school teacher once again i think season four just say okay a, a, praise absolute applaud uh now my little note here that baltimore of course of course if you're gonna have a, a show like this in your city baltimore had very mixed emotions uh, of course the uh, civic leaders they thought it was brilliant this is showcasing a putting an eye on all the you know, the crime, the corruption, uh, the dirty politics, and just the drug use. Uh, but, of course, the political leadership and even law enforcement, they were upset. And well, they, again, they, yeah. they're not portrayed in 100% positive light, right? There's definitely a, a critical lens uh, and a showcase on the dysfunction of the police department. And Obviously, the the police wants to outwardly seem like they are very capable and uh, doing their job. So to to be portrayed in a way that shows them not being able to accomplish very much and again be dysfunctional, that's the opposite of what they want to appear as. Well, it's kind of like there are good cops. There, they even a good cop can be a flawed human, but a lot of it is just like weighed down by bureaucracy, and yeah, it's it doesn't paint a uh, paint a flattering picture. And you would think, you would think that Baltimore might get better because of this show, but yeah, Baltimore still has its bad crime rates and everything. Well, and but, it's, it's and it's not like David Simon set out to make a show that would change Baltimore for the better, right? It's that's a little too. Uh, ambitious maybe like this is just this is how the world is and I, I feel like realism as a genre in general isn't a genre that's trying to change the world they are just trying to present things as they are and maybe just open people's eyes and maybe leave it up to the viewer if they want to do something about it but it doesn't have any qualms about rallying people to a certain cause true but I would think like it shouldn't have gotten worse. I'll say that. <laughs> like you would think, like a show that showcases the the institutional rot of some like institutions. Yeah. Like you would think, like you a policy change here and there might for the better. But I think that's why this show has gained more relevant in recent years. Is just because of all that. 
Right. But I think I think if anything, that stagnant status of the crime or you know the the, the increased rate of crime in, in Baltimore has just further proven the accuracy of the show. But uh of course, like they said, they were going to be like, you can't film here anymore. And he's like, OK, I'll just go to Philadelphia, but I'm still going to write. It's still going to be boss, uh, Baltimore police and it's still going to take place. And like so they relented. Of course, it's like, OK, you win. You can't not talk about it. So Right. And, you know, that's to have a show filmed in Baltimore. How many shows are filmed in Baltimore? Right. Like that's that's maybe not the most positive representation of the city, but still to to. To have any production come into a city is a big deal when that city normally doesn't have that. And so you can't turn that away. And I do appreciate the fact that all this, like, you get great acting from it, from, like, great character actors. But they were just regular-looking people. Yeah. Like, they, they're, all, like they're all regular-looking people. And, like, I think, the of course, like, Idris Elba is the one that really kind of became – the major star of it but even then it took a while right he was happen. he became famous from being in the wire and then also appearing on other shows afterwards but you're right there was no household name in the series to start with as was yeah, that case with some previous hbo shows and yeah if you want to be a realistic and authentic show you're not going to hire a big hollywood name true but you know the story like I, you know the story behind uh bubbles right andre royo that, uh, yeah, I think so, but remind me. That, uh, you know, he was in between scenes and a drug addict came up to him with a bag and said, you really need this right now. You look like you need this right now. Yeah, that's and, how good he was at playing a drug addict is uh, a drug dealer, like, believed him. Like, thought that was an actual right. person that would be a junkie. And he called it, like, his honorary Oscar. Like, like you've, it's, a, it's a weird Kind of, like I must be doing something right, but yeah, Bubbles, amazing arc, I will say. Like, but great char- like great characters all around, and you don't think a show like this you would be attached to, but give it time. Like I, I did watch this show, I treated it like a newspaper in the beginning, like the first couple of seasons, and then around season three, I'm like, I do have to find out what's next, and then I started binging it. That's what I've come to understand. Uh, and so I, when I first tried to watch this years ago, I watched the whole first season, started watching the second season, and just kind of fell off with, I believe the second season is dealing with people on the docks, and I was just kind of confused. Like It, it just seemed like it was a whole different story, but that kind of is the idea with each season tackling a different institution of Baltimore. And so what a lot of people who have seen the whole show tell me is that... The second season kind of is like the hump. And if you can get over that, not to say maybe those are bad episodes, but once you kind of come to understand what the show is doing throughout the second season, then you kind of get more on board once again and will have more momentum as a viewer going from there. I think it's an interesting plot, but I think it it's all good. <laughs> I would say that. It's all good. It's like, just yeah, unexpected, you- right? Like you you – Normally, as a viewer, you expect the second season to start where the first season left off. Not necessarily the case with this show, but that's fine. Now, as as an older viewer, I can appreciate that this show is in many ways trying to break the mold, as many great shows do. Like, you will rank the seasons. That's how, like, and, but I think it's all good. And, yeah. 
Um, okay, so I I think we're set here now. Uh, we're we're going to say it's June second, two thousand two. We're putting on HBO. So Keith, will you please take us to the pilot? I'm going to do my best. We're going to do our best to help with any confusion. I really took notes on characters and right, all that, right. but uh, a lot of names that we're going a, a to lot be of names. bringing up. Uh, and even if something's not really said in the season, I'll let you know what that character does. But, you know, we start out, I think, a great opening. It's just scene of the crime. Yes. And uh, we open up with Jimmy, Detective Jimmy McNulty. Dominic, uh, Dominic, whatever. West. I Dominic name. West. I was going to say Cooper. Uh, Dominic West, and he is trying to get info uh, about the murder of Snot Boogie. That's his name. Well, it's his nickname. Nickname. Not his yeah, legal yeah, name. It, well, the conversation goes, how do you get a name like Snot Boogie? And, like, you get a name like that, and that's what you're cursed with. But, yeah, the guy is not, like, he knows not to really give any information, but it's such a, like, why did Snot Boogie have to get gunned down like this? Because it seemed like they play a craps game every week, and once the money gets, once there's a good amount of money, Snot Boogie would just take it and run, and they would just beat his ass every time. And this one time, this guy shot him. And right. And I don't think we get the name of this witness, but no, he does say. You know, it, it it was over nothing, right? Like we, it, it it this was senseless, and he has an interesting line here though. Like when McNulty asks, "Why why'd you keep letting this snot boogie into your craps game if you knew he was gonna steal?" This is America, man. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I think that's a moment that takes a little while to digest. I'm still thinking about it, and I'm still not a hundred percent sure what that moment means for the show but i guess i get a sense that i don't know i can't even come up with something i i have a sense of what it means but i can't quite articulate yet you know it, it just is kind of like i don't know you you explained it maybe because i think you have a better grasp on what that moment means i'll do my best i this is his version this is his america this is his life he this guy him and snot boogie in order to make money like that, they have to play craps and they have to be in a world of drugs. And you kind of have to take that like, oh, sh crap, I can die by – you could. some people can die by a stray bullet. But this guy can get d gunned down by just pissing the wrong guy off. Like, man, I like a guy's got to make a living and a guy's got to make money. And, it, you know, this guy may be like a dick, but, you know, we got to let him play. And if he wins, like – but. You know, if he snatches the money, I got to beat his ass because he took my money. Like, it's all about survival, not only for your life, but just just to stay afloat. <laughs> and this right. is this person's America. Like, this guy, like, you will see, especially why, like, a, a lot of these boys who are, like, pawns in the system who are just dealing, like, they're just doing it to – make some money to pay they, they give to their mama they give to their family like they're yeah, just, get by you know is, they're they're born into the system this is their america 
Yeah, so that's I think that's a good point. And I think now I can articulate what I was interpreting from this, which is in America, you know, it's all about opportunity. And they were giving this guy, Snot Boogie, an opportunity to be in the craps game, to maybe earn money the way they all were, or if you want to try stealing again, fine. But opportunities in this part of America are far and few between. Yeah. Uh, so as soon as that line ends, we get into the intro. Now, well, you know the song, but each season it's sung by a different group. Yes, down in the hole. A different way version. Down in the hole. And, I, uh, I like that to distinguish the seasons. Yes, and uh, this season is done by the Blind Boys of Alabama. Now, every I think I even heard the Tom Waits who does season two. You yeah. way down in the hole, like he's got that raspy two pack a day voice. Right, it's a bluesy song, and from what I remember, the the first season version is a little more I don't want to say upbeat, but it has a faster pace to it and when then the sec- you walk through the garden the second right. season is kind of more menacing i remember it was a little more haunting and i, I thought that was kind of interesting right like um as if we're going to be going into a, a deeper level of hell or something like that right it's it was more foreboding where this first one you know it, the imagery you're seeing in this intro is just the combination of like wiretaps and people uh, from the police side of things uh, just doing their processes and mechanisms. And then you see also the, the same for the people in the drug business, like, you know, cutting the drugs and packaging the drugs. You're seeing the, the business of the two worlds uh, intercut between each other. So uh, another great way of saying like, you know, this is a show of two different worlds that are going to clash. So each episode uh, starts with an epigraph. Uh, usually it's – I think all the time it's said in the episode, but it kind of encapsulates the theme. Uh, and this one in the pilot we get, When It's Not Your Turn by McNulty. Right, right. And uh, I think it might be worth bringing up later in the episode why this is the quote of the episode, right? Like – you will find out the significance a little later. Not clear quite yet. I gotta ask you. If every time Snap Boogie would grab the money and run away, why'd you even let him in the game? What? But Snap Boogie always stole the money. Why'd you let him play? Got This America, man. So, it start, uh, you know, we come back and it's uh, McNulty, and uh, Bunk Morehouse, uh, his partner in Homicide, played by the great Rendell Pierce, and they're about to, they're entering the courthouse, and you know McNulty's basically recapping the his evening about it, and Bunk is kind of like, "Why are you here?" It's like, "I'm going to the D'Angelo Barksdale trial," and for him, like you know, he has nothing to do with the case, but he just wants to pop his head in for a very important reason, right? Uh, the D'Angelo Barksdale trial. D'Angelo Barksdale is basically like, I would say at this point, he's kind of like a bishop in Avon Barksdale's crew. Yeah, D'Angelo, you know, I, yeah, I would sorry. I would also equate that D'Angelo Barksdale is kind of like the Christopher Moltisanti 
uh, of the show in a way. Like he's the relative of the a king little bit, yeah, right. Who's learning the ropes a little bit, and uh, he's being charged with killing killing someone, and you'll f- we'll find out that it's a low ranking uh, gun- gang member. But in the courthouse already, like he takes a seat in the back, and right on the other side is uh, Stringer Bell, played by uh, Idris Elba. And Stringer Bell, for context in this crew, he is like the second – he's the brains of the operation. He's the chief of staff. He's the hand of the king. He's the Silvio Dante. I'm going to keep drawing parallels with The Sopranos just as uh, an in-joke. But, I mean, it's really its own show. I shouldn't – draw too many comparisons uh, hey i just referenced the hand of the king that's uh yeah that's fair but i guess a lot of times these organizations are structured a similar way so uh the prosecutor is talking to uh mr gant who was uh, he's like a the witness i I was gonna say security but that doesn't happen but he's the one that can identify that d'angelo barksdale killed this guy right points to him and he's very nervous right this witness a little shaky on the stand for good reason. Yeah. And well, he it's there uh it's it's very scary to have Stringer in the back staring at you. Well, there's other members of this Barksdale organization too. As a viewer watching it for the first time, you don't quite know that these are all associates uh associates of this crime organization, but you get a sense that you know, these are very powerful people who do not want anyone talking on the stand. Yeah, Weebay, Savino, and Stinkup. And Weebay, yeah, Weebay's more like the third, like he's a high up guy as well. Um, but yeah, the Polly Walnuts. Up, yeah, okay, I'll stop. <laughs> no, no, no. But they're, yeah, they're all dressed up in their suits, looking their finest, uh, kind of like the cheering section, literally. Um, but yeah, Mr. Gant, he's, he's nervous, but he does do the right thing. He does identify D'Angelo Barksdale. And, you know, uh, his lawyer, Maurice Levy, who that's a character. I don't even think they say his name, but you will see him throughout. Um, and he, uh, you know, all he says, is like, have you ever seen this guy before? Nope. Or, 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 like, nope. And that's he. They have their answer. They, they're not really focused on this witness because the next witness, uh, the next witness, Nikisha Lyles, she's the security guard. And, you know. With this testimony, they almost have him until, until that one look from Stringer and she changes her story. No, that's not the guy, but you have a sworn statement. Like, you identified him in the lineup. No, I thought it was, but and it kind of looks like him. She's completely, like, flipping the board on this trial. Right. I mean, at the very least, she's invalidating herself as a credible witness but at the the very worst, she is completely throwing off whether it it maybe it was a similar looking guy, right? Like she's completely uh, undermining the prosecution's case here and blindsiding them, right? Like they were not prepared for her to change her story all of a sudden. Yeah, and uh, she is doing her best to survive because once again, having Stringer in the back, and uh, it should be noted that during all this time. Stringer is just like he looks like he's just drawing on his notepad and you know uh McNulty looks over and you just have a like go fuck yourself detective. It right. really is it really is. I'm not going to say playful, it, but it is kind of like it's like uh, adversarial. It's kind of like the coyote and the and the sheephound. 
It's like this, like we know our roles, and uh, since we're in a courthouse, all I can do is tip of the hat and say, "Go fuck yourself." <laughs> right, right. Like they both know who each other are. Exactly, but Jimmy knows that with that testimony being flipped, uh, this case is lost and Stringer won. Uh, so we go, we cut to, uh, we we now start to get the some of the ensemble with Kim Greggs. And uh, really the only female cop on this, in this ensemble. And she's talking to a CI, an informant, who's giving them information on this like drug deal that's going down. And everyone's kind of watching. Uh, you can hear we're going to be introduced kind of in this first season, the comedic trio. I, I use that loosely, but they are, they come together as a pair, Ellis Carver and Herc. And you've seen Dominic Lazim, like you've seen this guy in a bunch of stuff. And yeah, Carver plays the priest in um, Walking Dead. Like, uh, like okay, uh, but, but they're watching this drug deal, and they do manage to get these guys. But even I have to note that like it's they're pretty amateurish. They're pretty buck wild about like uh, Herc forgets the two guns in the car. Right, he's very like um, he wants to play hero. Right, he wants to go exactly. guns blazing. And they miss a gun. You know, you could tell that um, Griggs, she is the most mature one. She's kind of like the leader of this trio and is going to kind of make sure that you know, she, she's the brains behind the three. And, um, yeah, they're they're busting this drug sting, but you just have a sense that they're kind of just pushing the boulder up the mountain, right? And it's it's not really accomplishing much. This is... Yeah, you know, this is how they operate. But are they really getting anywhere as a narcotics division, busting these small-time uh, drug deals? Uh, it doesn't seem so. At the, like, yeah, but I think when you're at when you're in narcotics, this is all that you can do with the information that you have, and we'll find out just like just how one bomb could really just just like erupt the whole institution, shake it basically. Now I should have noted that, like, that before that scene started, that Jimmy, knowing that the case is lost, goes to the lead detective of the case, and basically, it's like, "Hey, you just lost your case." And the guy's like, "What? No, two witness testimonies. Uh, how? Like, that's a slam dunk." Right. But the guy, I, he, he's very flippant about it. Yeah. As it turns out, uh, Judge Fallon brings the jury back in, and he. The jury has acquitted D'Angelo Barksdale on all accounts. Like, he is not guilty. And there is, ooh, ooh. Like, they are, like, his crew is there. And he's like, you know, silence, silence. But, yeah, they know how oh. to play. They know how to work the system. So after the trial, Judge Phelan talk, uh, calls Jimmy back to his office. And it seems like they're all, like, they are very friendly with one another. Like, there is a companionship. Like, it seems like, I imagine Phelan knew Jimmy, when he was a lawyer, and now, now now that I'm a judge, I can do whatever I want. Like, this is why I became a judge. And, you know, this is where he's like, why are you in my uh, courtroom? This isn't your trial. And it seems that Jimmy has been following this case. And basically, the D'Angelo Barksdale, or the Barksdale crew for a while. They, they had uh, basically sabotaged one of his cases in the past, right? Yes. Five out of oh yeah uh, yeah no it's like uh like ten of them three of them got like got messed up in his court and uh, you find out that D'Angelo is the cousin of Avon 
but no one knows who Avon is. Like I never heard that name, and you find out that uh, like he has five of the seven towers in the terrace. Like this guy is a major player and basically a ghost. Right, and so I find it interesting. It seems like McNulty has done some independent investigating right on his own time to find out more about this Barksdale crew because as we'll find out the narcotics division has ever heard of this guy it seems like no one else really in the whole police department is aware of of Avon Barksdale and his and his crew so uh it's you know there's a whole thing here about caring right uh McNulty He's at this trial that wasn't a case of his, and there's like a whole recurring theme, at least in the pilot, of you know when it's your turn, right? That's that's the quote, and you know like going above and beyond doesn't necessarily serve him well in this episode, right? Like there, it, it seems like he's trying to do the right thing here, due diligence, but that's not going to really be appreciated by anyone. No. No, and even Phelan asks, like, why do you care who says I did? And you, he's kind of – he's smiling, but – It's like he cares, but he can't say he cares because that's not how this police department operates. But it's amazing how, like – hey, props to Avon for, like – you, and you will see over the course of the first season just how the kind of operation that him and Stringer have just to be ghosts. Yeah. Yeah, they, they know what they're doing, and McNulty is the only person who is on to them. So now we go over to the narcotics division, and I really like this. This is where you get the three Herc, Greggs, and uh, Ellis. They're just like chatting, and this is kind of where you just feel like you're lived in. Like it's just a regular chat. Uh, Greggs, I think being the only girl is is one of the guys. Like I or she has to be one of the guys. Yeah. Um, but well, we she's also, also she's also the only responsible one. Like she's the one filling out paperwork, and the other two guys are just throwing a tennis ball around, right? Like they're goofing off, and she's doing paperwork. And I'll like I'm not saying like uh, it shows, but that kind of you can see if you watched the show before, just where their stories go. It kind of just all starts with their attitudes at this moment. It's kind of interesting. Uh. But this is where we also meet Lieutenant Daniels, R.I.P. Uh, Lance Reddick, and uh, he's kind of yeah, he's the head of the division, and he, he lets them know that like he's the one getting called up to the top, and you know something happened. Right, right. It's something. Something is happening behind the scenes that we as an audience aren't totally aware yet, but we'll find out soon. This conversation that McNulty had with Felon, with the judge, uh, it is going to basically be the catalyst for the plot of the show. And it seems so innocent at the time, but I, I like that. There's a lot you don't see happening plot-wise. Again, that is why we have to be a little more active as a viewer. A uh, lot that's behind the scenes, off-camera, that is driving the plot. But yeah, uh, you know, it's funny. You highlighted a line like, shit always rolls downhill. Um, and that's true. And that's true in bureaucracies or something like, like you know, just... It happens at the top, and the people at the the bottom or mid management have to pay for it. Right, they're the ones who are going to brunt any sort of, um, you know, displeasure from from management from their bosses. Right, like like the guy the guy at the top isn't happy, the guy below him won't be happy, and then so forth. And 
uh, you know, these guys are going to see how they have to pay for all of the the dealings that their superiors are are trying to work out between each other. Now, one thing that we didn't really talk about, but of course we'll see it over the course of the episode, is of course this was written, this premiered in uh, 2002, so 9-11 happened, and you will see uh, just how as a lot of federal resources and uh, city money will be pumped into the FBI and terror watch, that means budget cuts will happen on the in narcotics and homicide, uh, and homicide and drug and the drug the war on drugs will get less focus while the war on terror will get more that's a huge element of the story again like context is really important for the show it's very much a snapshot of its time but also visually you know you can get a sense as well that the resources are very limited with these uh Baltimore police divisions so like Griggs is filling out a report on a typewriter and she has to use whiteout to fix mistakes, right? It's, it's, they're, they're so behind in 2002 for uh, a city police department. So I have computers and the, and the characters are joking like, Oh yeah. Like if you give this one guy a computer, he's going to be just looking at porn all day. <laughs> you know, you can't be trusted. It's crazy to think that by 2002, they would not have computers yet. But, uh, you highlighted the shit always rolls downhill line. The line that I highlighted that I found interesting is you can't call this shit a war now. Why not? Wars end. The war yeah. on drugs – like we, we talk about uh, institutional failures or bureaucracy or just in them as a whole. But the real start of this show is the war on drugs and it's just failed policy. It's like why – yeah, they are doing the things that they do and, and and the jail time they have to like how they view jail time, how uh, it's how it's affected communities. Not only like not only the drugs, but just the re the the reaction to it at the time. Well, it just there's a sense it, it, in hindsight now it's just an absolute failure. Oh, absolutely. And it's you're right. That is a great line too. you know, wars end. And obviously the war on drugs had no end in sight. And you do get a sense, too, from even the characters joking around that there's kind of a futility to their work, right? Like, again, like they're they're busting these small time uh, drug deals. But for on a larger scale, things are probably worse than ever. Now, it's like it explains it, it is like the the giant umbrella of, of this show because it like it, it has its. uh tentacles in everything like even the docs like the docs is like they they're dealing drugs and like it yeah it, it just i mean interesting too with with as you're mentioning resources being pulled away from the war on drugs uh that is kind of leading maybe to as an initial result right these uh drug organizations getting a little more powerful and being able to get away with more but that being said you know, the war on drugs was a very misguided initiative that caused more harm than good. So I'm not saying that it, it's a it's a bad thing to withdraw resources from the war on drugs, but I've, but you know, again, like the initial result is yeah, you know, the, this problem getting exacerbated a bit. We get to see the effects on how it affects the cops and their morale, and like you see that like at one point. Um... Not a strike, but like severe budget cuts in season five. Like they have to deal with that, and that's when you see like morale at an all-time low. But uh, so 
we go back to Jimmy where he's meeting uh, Bunk and they, you know, they're investigating a crime scene where this old man is just lying dead in his apartment. They're hoping it's not a murder, right? Like there's, they're basically hoping that, you know, he just died of natural causes and it doesn't have to be a case. And I, I think that's kind of interesting. You know, these are homicide detectives who are hoping that they do not have to investigate a possible homicide. It's like, even when it is their turn, they don't really care. And I find that interesting. You're in line. You're next. Like, that's how it's kind of like, because if, yeah, if it becomes a, hom- uh, a homicide, if it becomes a murder, you have to investigate it. And like, that could be long hours. That could be like cold cases. It just. But that is their job. They're homicide detectives. And it's like, you know, uh, McNulty is telling Bunk, like, you take it. It's yours. I don't want it. Right. I think that's an interesting attitude for these detectives to have. And even when they are assigned cases later on, it's like, oh, crap. You know, now I have to do something. So Daniels returns from his meeting with the major and he he's very close with uh, Greg uh, Greg's and he's kind of relaying all the information. And he brings up Avon Barksdale and it's kind of like, who is this guy? Like no one knows who Avon is. And. You know, he tells her to call the DEA and get some inf- any info. Like, let's even try to get a date of birth on this guy. They have nothing, but they have to report to him like soon. Right. Like she's going to have to now do a last minute report. And again, shit rolling downhill. Right. Like she's going to have to now do uh, bear the brunt workload wise for um, the orders up top. So uh, we then jump over to homicide and we meet another character who kind of is just like recurring uh, Jay Landsman, and he's their sergeant. He's the one that hands out the assignments. He guys, he has that desk job. He uh, yeah. And I've seen this guy typically as a uh, defense attorney on Law and Order. Right, he's usually one of these slimy defense attorneys, and he has that kind of again cynical attitude that works in Law and Order, and then it definitely works in the context of this show. I was, uh, I think when I watched Veep a couple of weeks ago, I saw him in an episode. I'm like, oh, hey, <laughs> working actor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's who a lot of these guys are. They're all working actors that you've seen in lots of other things. And because this is a show full of working actors, they get a little more of the spotlight, which is exactly. nice to see. Um, and he's, Landsman's kind of like, more like I've always known him to be like a fun guy, but now he's got the big job and he has to be the boss. He answers the Rawls. And he's like, hey, Major Rawls wants to talk to you, Jimmy. And Rawls is pissed. Rawls Rawls basically rails him over the coals for going above his board and for going over the chain of command. And like, why are you speaking to a judge? And Jimmy, like, I I didn't know that he would say anything. Right. Like he was talking like as if to a friend to this judge. But now this is a good example of a scene I didn't really quite understand when I was younger, because this uh, Major Rawls is furious. The second McNulty walks in to this office, the guy is giving him two middle fingers and is just chewing him out like, fuck you, McNulty. I'm going to get you back for this. You're, you know, he, he is furious. And it kind of went over my head. Why? When I first watched this, I'm like, wait, what happened? Like, oh, over that conversation? Like, what's the big deal? And now I understand going over the chain of command is a really big deal. And in in this institution, you know, like th- these guys at uh, the upper level, when 
when their guys are being insubordinate, it looks bad on them. And for this guy to be blindsided as well, like he was brought into a meeting with the deputy commissioner and he was totally unprepared for it. And for a lot of these guys, their image, their reputation, it is everything. So again, I totally understand the reaction now, even though I didn't really before. And it's it's like, it's just kind of jarring too to see a boss talk to his subordinate in such a vulgar and nasty way. Well, what could Jimmy do? Like it, it really, like it, but also a lot of these people, when they're in these positions of major police commissioner, sergeant, they they're vying for the next uh, promotion. Right at that point, they're very career driven. When you've reached major, and now you're more concerned with the politics than really the with the um, on the street crime. Right, like you're you're not in the street. Like even by sergeant, like you were mentioning. By the time you reach sergeant, now you're just in the office, and now you're really just concerned on a bigger scale, big picture stuff, uh, and maybe you're you're a little more disconnected with the reality of what's on the street. Um. So basically, Rawls tells him like, "Hey," he punishes him with saying, "You're gonna r- write up my report, uh, and you're gonna be up all night doing it. It's due at eight o'clock, uh, and use uh dots. The commissioner likes dots." Yeah, and it it's not going to be easy. He's going to make it very difficult for him. And it's a late night for both uh, McNulty and Greg. So I read that little last shot of Greg Stan do, writing up her report. On the other side of the town, D'Angelo is driving with Weebay, and they're on their way to go see Avon and Stringer. And, you know, it's a sign of the times, but also a sign of their operation is that they use beepers. And they'll, they'll use uh, burner phones as it goes on. Well, but, you know, the police also use beepers too, right? There's yeah. definitely some parallels between the two worlds. But it's amazing how, like, I always wonder how the wire could be made now. But at the time, you'll see, like, just the codes they sh- they have to use and just, like, the stuff that they say, how they hit the button. It's amazing. Right. And that is stuff that really gets examined more in later episodes that I really had a hard time understanding when I first watched. But, uh, you know, D'Angelo's basically going on about the trial and – like Weebay pulls right over and just rails him over the coals. It's like, you do not talk about any, you do not talk about our operation in the car, on the phone to anybody that you don't know. Right. He is naive and being uh, a cousin to the Kingpin, maybe he kind of was brought up the ranks a little quickly, a little more quickly than these other guys, right? Maybe he didn't earn his dues uh, as, as much. He was but, protected. Uh, he right, was protected, but and that would explain maybe so he seems like a little privileged in context of his world. Exactly, exactly. Like he can, like the way he acts, he acts like he belongs at the big boy table. Like, like right, right. There's a sense of entitlement. Exactly. So uh, we get to the strip club, which is one of their bases of operation, and you know Stringer and Avon are sitting at top, like they're the kings. And uh, Avon is played by Wood Harris, which probably at the time he went from like Remember the Titans to this. And he's all I've seen, you know, he's been in Blade Runner. He's been in Judge. He always funny enough. He plays a cop in some of these stuff. Uh, and Ant-Man, right? He's, he's a cop. That's uh, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, uh, Stringer is basically talking about the trial and telling him, talking, warning him about Jimmy. It's like, hey, there's this guy. There's this detective that's been following us. But. 
who cares? Like, you know, like Avon is like, once again, Stringer's the brain. Avon is the the face like, uh, of the operation. Right. Well, you know, it's like worth being aware of. But these yeah. guys know that one guy is is not nearly enough to really disrupt any of their business. They have a foolproof operation going. Um, so, you know, uh, D'Angelo gets to the floor and, you know, is, is welcome back. And, you know, I want to talk to my cousin alone. And he's like, why would you shoot a low-level, this low-level thug? And it seems like it, it, it shouldn't even, like, this guy, like, it should not have even amounted to a shooting. But Avon's telling him, like, that lawyer, like, ev- all this cost, you cost our operation money. You get, you kind of exposed us, but that everything was to get you out. And it cost us so much. For money so stupid time right yeah. it was a risk right the exposure of it all exactly. now it's, and now you have um you know this mcnulty guy is is getting more on to them through this trial You're right the the consequences have not occurred to d'angelo yet he's just happy to be out and avon has to kind of give him a reality check here i feel like if d'angelo wasn't uh avon's cousin d'angelo would be dead Right, right. Uh, that's you know, I I hate to keep comparing it to the Sopranos, no, it's, but I, I it's was very make a Soprano. It's very Christopher because Christopher in that first season makes almost the same kind of mistakes. He makes a lot Especially of mistakes. In the pilot, <laughs> he kills a guy. Right, right, exactly. And uh, it's another case where if it wasn't for your relationship to the the top guy to the boss, then you'd be long gone. Uh, but he tells his cousin Avon that he's going to be better. And Avon knows it. He's like, I, I, I believe you. Um, and he loves him. Give me a hug. Don't leave angry. But um, as we'll find out, he isn't totally off the hook. There is no, a price no. to be paid for his actions. I'm saying no harm. I mean, shit y'all pull with that security lady. <laughs> it was tight. <laughs> I mean, that state lawyer, I ain't never seen a white woman turn so red. <laughs> Should have been there. <laughs> Yo, man, you family. Okay, that shit costs money. It costs time and money. You gonna make that right? No, Steph. You gonna see when I get back to the tower, I'm gonna push them niggas. So we go back, you know, morning is coming and Bunk returns to homicide and it's not natural causes. Uh, And uh, basically McNulty is telling him like he's in a lot of trouble with, with the major. Yeah. And this is where Jay Landsman returns and kind of playing buddy buddy. This is like when your friend becomes the boss. Yeah, right. It's like, it's like they have a rapport, but you know, also he's not happy either, Jay Landsman, right? Like he had to come in early and he said, Yeah, the major called me to come in early to make sure you finish the report. So interesting way that this major is punishing McNulty and not just having him write a report all night, but making his uh, colleagues mad at him, right? Like everyone has to pay now for McNulty's actions. So it's, um, you know, a, a really interesting and political way to get back at him. And also like a, like a, like you think of like Gomer Pyle or, or private Pyle in a full metal jacket, just like if he messes up, you all mess up. So they all get angry at Pyle. Like, yeah, uh, that's exactly it. But the thing that was interesting about this conversation that uh, Landsman brings up is just like, you know, if you like 
you could get reassigned to another unit and getting reassigned could be really good or really like you could be a desk job you could be in the archives and the last place that mcnulty wants to go is harbor patrol he doesn't want to go on the boat right and you know interesting here you mentioned that jay landsman the sergeant is kind of like the friend who became the boss and so you get a sense that mcnulty still has a sense of trust with him but that he will rue those words. Yeah, that can only go so far. And like your by admitting friends... this, it's it's you know I, like having seen the whole first season, how the season ends for McNulty. Maybe that's I'm like giving too much away, but you know he he says this uh, trustingly to Landsman, but this will be brought back to him in a vindictive way. So as the morning rises for the cops, the morning also rises for. The D'Angelo as he returns to the towers and Stringer is there to greet him, but he is not going to be working at the towers today. He is going to be in charge of the low rises, which is like, kind of, you know, if you think about it, it's like, uh, like we're putting you in charge of like the D team, right? It's kind of like you're going from the major leagues to the minor league. Yeah, like the the island of misfit toys, kind of, and they are misfits. Uh. Right, right. Um, it's it's uh, well, you'll see. He's going to be working with less experienced drug dealers. Now, the scene, like right before he gets to the low rises, there's a scene that we get. We show Rawls getting into the elevator to meet the. Um, they're they look like they're about to meet the commissioner, and he gets in the elevator with Raymond Forrester, who's in charge of the narcotics division. Right, the two majors are having a very uncomfortable, intense elevator ride together. This McNulty has really shaken everything up, and uh, they both hate him. And it's just like, hey, you should think about using Daniels for this operation, uh, is what Forrester recommends. Rawls. And I think that's what the importance of the scene is, how Daniels gets involved in all this. Right. But I, I also like, too, the touch that, you know, uh, Forster is telling Rawls, like, remind McNulty to follow the chain of command. So, yeah, you know, like everyone is mad about what McNulty has done. A, such a seemingly innocent conversation really pisses everyone off. That's amazing. And also, like, Rawls is getting flack for McNulty's actions as well. So, um you, you know, it's so interesting to see uh, how quickly things spiral from that. Now, uh, D gets to the low rises, and this is where we meet some great characters. Bodie, Poot, and everyone mouths drop when they see Wallace. Yes. Uh, Did you recognize Wallace? Yes, a very young, baby-faced Michael B. Jordan. Oh, my God. It's I, it like It kind of like – I think when I first watched it, I was like, I knew he was in the show, but – baby face he's like 14 he's so young in this uh but he's, he's really great. great he's yeah. great um he but it starts to it's never said to him but d starts to realize why he's there so uh raymond calls daniels in and like just like he he's inform he like he's informing daniels about like this barksdale investigation and he's basically going to set Daniels up with homicide and it looks like Daniels is going to be the lead of this, uh, or a uh, little crew. Right. The detail, right. That that's what it's called. They're forming a detail and yep. They're, they're also not too happy about it. Right. Uh, Daniels, it's a fucking shit storm as they call it. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So everyone's lives is being disrupted at this point. And, uh, I mentioned him before, but 
the next scene is where we get an introduction to Bubbles and played by it's such a great performance but he's with his friend Johnny Weeks and like you know they're they're both junkies like to put it just plain and simple they're both junkies it looks yeah, like yeah they're addicts yeah Bubbles is 3 months out of prison and they're making uh paper like you know counterfeit paper like they're putting coffee on like paper money to just make it look like money and uh you know we then go to D who's watching how this operation is going on and you know it's like kind of like how the cops are kind of like how Herc, Greg's and Ellis are uh Poot Bo uh Bodie and uh, Wallace are very unorganized. They do they're doing everything wrong, doing everything that could get them caught. Especially Wallace who is basically kind of walking with the guy to get the the drugs. Yeah, yeah, they're they're like very transparent about what they're doing. Like any if if a police were to if any police officer were to observe this, it'd be very obvious what's going on. And also if they're being if they're getting taken pictures of, they would have their yes. case lined up for them. So basically, he's not railing. He's more like teaching Wallace about how it's done. I think that's the difference between like his uh, getting railed and just like, hey, like uh, D becomes more of a mentor teacher to these people. Um, and Bodie, as Wallace is about to count the money, Bodie says, you have to count it. Like, you should count it. And that's when they find the fake money. And damn, like, Wa uh, D is pissed. Like, yeah, yeah, and he, he's going to be giving Wallace a, a warning here, right? Like, if, if you keep screwing up, not only are you going to be off money, you're going to be found at the bottom of a, a pit somewhere, right? Like, it's um, he's not playing around here. Well, of course, we'll see why these characters do what they do, but especially Wallace, who is – it's not spoiler, but he is trying to provide. <laughs> and you'll see to who and to why. Um, But the next scene is – to me, just like it's real, but it's so uncomfortable. It's Bubbles and Johnny shooting up. Um, yeah. And uh, as they nod off, Johnny kind of asks Bubbles to. He wants to do the scam next time. Like I want to do the money scam. Right. Right. And honestly, with this scene, it is uncomfortable to watch, and you know, it's just I feel so sad for people who fall into this this addiction into this trap. You know, I, I always kind of considered drug addiction to kind of be like a spell right you're under the spell that drives all of your efforts and resources to obtaining this uh this high and it's um yeah it's just sad to see people fall into that trap and as as uncomfortable uh, it is to watch and sad it is kind of necessary to see it just to actually look it in the face well this is what um, it's kind of all about right like you see the police trying to track, uh, crack down on uh, these these drug deals, and you see these uh, drug runners trying to just make money and get by, and uh, it it all is at the cost of people's health and well being and their lives. They're the end of the chain of command, or the, they're the end of the road. They're at like the bottom of this food chain. Yeah. Uh, so daniels goes to see the uh the deputy commissioner uh irving burrell played by frankie Faison, and you know this is where uh irving burrell like he care like he kind of he's been in the he's been the commissioner for a while he knows how to do it he's like you know what 
because it's a judge who asks, like, we got to give this a shot. Like, I want this to be quick. I want this to be like, uh, like, I will give you whatever you need, but you come to me. But he's giving him the head of the operation. This, like, who are your people? And of course, Daniel says Greg's like best detective. But you're gonna assemble a little team here, and uh, you might get McNulty. You might get McNulty as well. It's like, who speaks to a judge? It's kind of like, like yeah. this, the the blue code in a way. I do like seeing everyone else's reactions to this, right? Like Daniels is also thrown off when he finds out about McNulty's conversation with the judge. And at this point he's, you know, McNulty has earned a very negative reputation. And this deputy is um, warning Daniels about McNulty. He's like, Hey, if this guy is brought into the detail, watch your back. You keep oh, yeah. he's saying like, this guy can't be trusted and yeah, I'll help you out if you need. But Again, like watch out for this guy. And yeah, it, uh, when you see McNulty out of context, it seems like he is trying to do the, the right thing, but he's just going about it in not the right way, at least not the way that the people around him want him to. Well, we'll see that over the course of the series that uh, McNulty and Daniels have different ways of going about the, the case. The cases, but especially like they, like they have different philosophies. Yeah, exactly. They're going to have different objectives as they carry out this detail. But And so we go actually to see what McNulty's up to, and he is going to visit his FBI contact, Agent Fitzhugh, at the FBI. And kind of just seeing – like once again, we get to see all the resources, all the money that's being funded to the FBI and the war on terror and what they're doing. Yeah, they have like – the top of the line technology, right? The office is a lot shinier and nicer. And you're going to be seeing too, this, the surveillance technology is, is, you know, just top of the line. It's beyond anything. Oh, he's amazed. He's like, that. like, it's not a tape. The audio is clear and something clicks with him that like, Oh, like this is how it's done. Right. Right. This is really a pivotal scene for McNulty to see what is possible uh, and, and you know, what they should be doing with this detail that they'll be setting up. Um, so we're back at the low rises and Wallace is in the middle of just trying like something he's a, a customer is giving him a hard time or something about cash. And Johnny takes his moment to sneak in and basically uh, put, give him his money and make, make messing everything up. But uh, Brody kind of sees the fake money, this happening and they identify like that's the guy who ripped us off. Yeah, and once again, like, like they chase this Johnny down, and they really, they brutally beat him. Yeah, they catch him, and D'Angelo, you know, he kind of, without saying anything, lets them do what they want to with this guy. And uh, I also just want to call out too, you know, you see Wallace getting a little overwhelmed for a second as he's he's counting money, and this guy is giving him a hard time about the change. He is a kid, right? He's maybe fourteen. Looks like he could be younger. I'm not sure. I think Michael B. Jordan was like 14 or 15 when they filmed 14, this. 15, yeah. But he looks like he could be younger. Like he, he's so innocent looking and he is – it's so sad to see uh, someone so young getting involved in this. And, you know, this is, this is such like an adult world that he's had to enter. And once you're in the game, it's hard to like get out. So, exactly. And this, is, and this is the low level of like – customer service like it's just oh right yeah you're you're dealing with uh like 
drug addicts, right? And it's just not something ever you want to see someone so young getting caught up in. But right before they really beat up uh, uh, Johnny, like, you know, uh, Brody's like, what do we, what do you want us to do to this guy, D? What do you want us to do? And D doesn't really kind of just takes his money back. He takes whatever's in Johnny's wallet and he's not really giving an answer. Like, he's just kind of like, he actually like walks away. Yeah. You know, I, it's kind of like he's, he's giving them the go ahead to just beat on this guy. But I think we'll find out in his next scene that, yeah, D'Angelo was maybe a little uncomfortable with that level of violence, right? He was he was a bit conflicted, and this is going again towards him learning what it takes to be a leader in this business. Exactly, because Brody's the one that really kind of takes charge, and they, it, it's what they do to him is just awful. Yeah, yeah, it, it cuts away, you know, like you start to see the beginning of it, but thankfully. Um, you know, it, it, it cuts and we just see the result of it. So this is where we get like a, the big chunk of like Daniels has his team assembled and we kind of uh, I don't even think we introduce her by name, but we get Rhonda Perlman, who's the state's attorney. She a state's attorney needs to be there to help them get warrants and uh, talk to the judges and basically is helping them going to be helping them with the trial. But we also get another cop, San, uh, Angelo, who's just kind of like, oh, I guess I'm. I'm, I guess I'm here. I did this part of the job. It's only supposed to be a month. This operation. Yeah, if that, right? Like they, it, everyone just wants to get this over with, except for McNulty, who really wants to do this the right way. And I also get a kick too out of, um, you know, the, the attorneys have very little patience for for these guys, right? Because Daniels and McNulty start to argue over how to proceed, and the attorneys are like, you know what, like, call, get back to us when you figure out what you want to do, right? Everyone is so curt with each other. The house is not in order. It's unprofessional. It's just like, what am I doing here? I'm wasting my time. Because, yeah, like we said, the different philosophies, uh, Jimmy wants to use this deep level of surveillance. Like, he wants to, like, really go undercover. Like, just, this is how we get this guy. Meanwhile, Daniel's Really, he wants to do this fast, clean, and simple, just quick drug bust, like uh, bust and run. Like that's yeah, how similar, we do it. similar to what we saw at the beginning of the episode with what exactly. Greg was doing. Right, it just just keep doing that what we've been doing, and yeah, McNulty is trying to change things, but again, Daniels is the leader of this detail, and McNulty but they don't even have a photo of the guy. <laughs> uh, no, ex- exactly. Like they they don't really know what they're getting into. And Daniels is going to remind McNulty, like, chain of command. Like, exactly. He's like, I'm in charge. We're going to do this the way I say. And yeah, it's just tough for a guy, McNulty, who, you know, maybe he does have the right idea, but he doesn't really have, you know, the, the political finesse to get his ideas to be implemented. That's really good. I think that's exactly like he doesn't have or, or even like. He will like the thing about McNulty is he's really, really good at his job. The right. other thing about about McNulty, and we'll see in the next scene, is he has his flaws. And after a meeting like that, the first thing you kind of want to do is go out drinking with your friend and bitch. And right. not only are you bitching about the job, but McNulty, it's not said in this episode, but he's an adulterer. Like he he focuses on the job, but he also philanders around, and he is getting like. His ex is messing with him, like trying to mess around with dates. He doesn't really get to see his kids. Yeah. Um, and yeah, McNulty, 
as good as he is as being a cop and as much as he kind of loves the job he like he is severely lacking i think that what just makes him human like it like you are yep. kind of rooting for him with flaws and all but yeah uh you know he kind of asks bunk about uh daniels and daniels knows who or bunk knows who daniels is and he's like this guy beware of him he's a company man He's a company yeah. man. Well, he's he's uh, you know Bunks is telling McNulty too, like you know this Daniels guy, he's probably going to be in line to be a, a major at the next uh, availability of that position, right? Like he's someone who's on the up and up, and he's being propped up by people already at the top, like the deputy commissioner. So yeah, it, if you're going to go against this guy, then you're not going to have any support. Now, the one thing uh, I found interesting about this scene, and this is just like. I don't think I ever would have gotten it in my 20s just because I'd never seen the movie. But uh, the scene ends with Jimmy basically going, I feel like Alec McGinnis, Alec Guinness's character at the end of Bridge of the River Kwai. Now, just to briefly, it's like uh, Bridge of the River Kwai is about how like this this uh, army team, uh, Alec Guinness plays this general and they get kidnapped and they're in this like internment camp and over uh, – Alec Guinness's character kind of gets charmed or he's like, you're put in, uh, in patrol in charge of this, of this team. And they have to build this bridge. And over time, Alec Guinness, while trying to help them becomes very antagonistic towards his own men. And at the end, of course, the bridge blows up and he goes, my God, what have I done? And it's just the reason why Jimmy feels that way. is just maybe even, I should not have even opened my mouth because, okay, you get this organization to get Avon, but if this goes south, this this could Avon will never be exposed. This could all even like even though we're heading in the right direction, this could all be for nothing. Right. And this is their only shot, right? It's like, okay, we're gonna try to do something, but if nothing comes of this, then we all have to move on and things are gonna remain the same. And you and know he'll most likely be in Harbor Patrol. Like like they're not gonna keep him in homicide after this. No, no, no. Like he won't really be able to return to the same status quo in terms of his own career position. Uh, but also with that reference, Bridge on the River Kwai, like you know, Buck didn't really see that movie, so he doesn't understand. And I, I also just realized too, I think McNulty's other problem is that he's too smart for his own good. Like he's smarter than a lot of the people around him, but again, he's he doesn't have the the social aptitude to really translate his ideas in in a way that people will listen. One last thing. No one does anything at all on the street without me knowing about it first. Chain of command, detective. That's how we do things down this end of the hall. But so we go back to where D at the strip club where D is getting kind of chastised or being like Stringer is basically kind of warning him, telling him that he, he can't show weakness. Um, and I think it's in referring to getting Johnny beat up. Like, you right. really, you should have, like, you have to send a message. Right, because D'Angelo is like, you know, it was only over a couple of bucks, right? Like $10, $20. But, again, that's not the point. You know, if someone tries to get away with that, you can't go easy on them. You, you have a – the organization has a reputation to uphold. Um, and so D gets a drink, and this is where one of the strippers, uh, Chardine – who will she once again we don't know her name in this first episode but she'll pop up throughout the season uh she comes over and kind of try to charm her way into 
Deech to buy him a drink, but he actually says, no, I think I'm good. Um, and I always think, like, not only is he having, like, a bad time of it, but he's kind of – the scene ends with him kind of just – this is not how I pictured my life in this organization. Right, right. Uh, I He seems very lost in this yeah. moment. Um, so we get a little bit of Greg's life, uh, uh, Greg's life outside of her job, and I was shocked. I didn't. I forgot that this was in this episode, but yeah, no. She once again, you got to give it to HBO in the early two thousands, like right away. She, like she, we see her partner. She's a lesbian. Yeah, and I think that it's interesting. You know, you're not just having a same sex couple, but it's also you know same sex couple of color, and yeah, I not common at all if non-existent at all prior to this show so uh another great way for i don't know the show to maybe try to be a little more progressive in its representation and that maybe the the broadcast networks weren't ready for yet yeah exactly and you know her partner is very supportive but it's also like you get to see how hard it is to date or be married to a cop well also it seems like she is in some sort of graduate school program right is she in law school or i'm not sure but uh, she has all these like, textbooks laid out and she was mentioning that there's like an assignment due the next morning don't hold me to it i think it might be social work but i oh, okay. it's either law school or social work i just can't remember but this isn't the last time we'll see her either well you know i think that's a nice detail too because clearly she is very career driven and it also seems like her and her partner don't really see a lot of each other because she's coming home and she mentions to her partner, like, oh, like, aren't you running late for work? Like, as soon as she's coming in the door, her partner has to get ready to leave. And, you know, that's um, I, I like seeing a, a glimpse into how these, um, you know, the, the lives, at the, the home lives of these uh, police officers is, um, is is strained from the demanding work they do. And as soon as re- Greg sits down, her beeper, her beeper goes off. And... Uh... I'll kind of like I'll skip over the scene just because then we'll find out that she meets Bubbles at the ER, and it's been a while. Bubbles like like Bubbles has been out of jail like I said for three months, and he's a criminal informant. He is a CI, and we see why Bubbles is there, and they beat up Johnny bad. They like he's it's not like, good. He, it's not good. It's lucky he's alive. Type right. Stuff. I mean, like I I knew that he was getting a beating, but we see him in this hospital bed with like tubes and, and everything, right? Like it, it's like he is in uh, critical care, but uh bubbles out of a lot of anger. Like Johnny's his friend, just like, like he's like, I have something for you. And that also might be the key into this whole operation. Right. I, I do like, there's like that moment uh, is one of the, the setup moments for the rest of the series, right? Like this is such a smart pilot in that it's a lot of setup, but they're also giving you uh, some nice little to be continued cliffhanger moments um, that are very subtle. It's a good chapter one. You know, it, it feels yep. like a chapter one. I got some, some episodes, some pilots and hell, some seasons feel like a prologue. And we'll get to that at when it comes. But this is a definitive chapter one. I, I do really like how this whole pilot is structured. It's um just it's just very thoughtful and I, I admire um just how 
all the foundation is built for this story. So as we near the end, it, Bunk and Jimmy are still drinking, but they're drinking on the tracks. It's late. It's like 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and they're just kind of shooting the shit. And uh, Bunk kind of retells a story about how you know a mouse snuck into the house and his wife's freaking out. So he shot it. He used his like his his police gun to fire a bullet. And it kind of just shows that like while these may be good cops, they're very loose with rules or they try to be good detectives. They're very loose with like, you know, cuz the ammo, you have to kind of report the ammo and all that. Right. There's like kind of a sense of detachment from what they should be doing, right? Like, obviously, you should not use your weapon. You shouldn't discharge it at a rodent in your house. Um, I also get a kick out of the Bunk character here because I feel like Wendell Pierce's performance, it's a little more um, of a stylized performance. He kind of gives me, like, a noir-ish vibe, just the way he retells his stories and, you know, the way he smokes his cigars and stuff. He seems kind of, like, aloof, right? He, he plays it very cool. And I get a kick out of that. Like, he has a lot more finesse than his partner, McNulty, has. I think you will see that, like, yes, he can get frustrated with the job. He can be not apathetic, but he could just, you know, he could be hung over at the job. But he is a damn good detective. Yeah. I, um, But Jimmy has to pee, and he's going to pee right by the tracks. And it kind of – you see the train coming. Yeah. And, and as – all this is happening. Jimmy kind of has that thought of like, you know what? I'm going to see this case through. I'm going to do it. And it's kind of like the train's coming. Are you going to – like what's going to happen? The train's coming. What are you going to do? That's how I kind of interpret it as that. Like you don't really – like the show doesn't – it's not like uh, Sopranos where you can interpret a lot. But that train's are coming. Are you going to get out of the way and do something or are you going to let it hit you? Yeah, right. It's a very – clever but you know maybe not not to be critical you know it is a little bit of an obvious metaphor a freight train is headed his way uh and is he gonna be able to get out of its way but yeah in that moment he's saying i'm gonna do this my way right he he's going to be defiant that's that's his resolve and it didn't really work out for him before and we'll see what the consequences are as he proceeds so Landsman the next morning wakes up a very hungover bunk and since they're down a man I got you another assignment there's been a murder yeah and Landsman is also playing along railing into McNulty here it's like hey McNulty got himself detailed so that's why we're down a man you're gonna have to take on more cases right he's just another way to rail into this guy right it's just the he's, he's gonna be suffering abuse for quite some time so uh, Bunk arrives at the crime scene, and you know he gets—he knows what to do. Like he puts on his glove, uh, and uh, we see that D's in the crowd. And then it turns out that the body is Gant, and uh, the witness, a, right? The, the witness. witness. Well, you see in a flashback that it is the witness who pointed at him and identified him in court. Right. That is, um, you know, why maybe the other witness was quick to recount her story. Now, just it's the only episode to contain a flashback, and HBO insisted on it, and Simon was like, "Don't, please don't." But he kind of said, "Maybe it it helped." He kind of rela- over time, he's like, "I can kind of see why it was used," and I kind of, I can see why it was used too, and I kind of, I think, 
for the first episode, it was needed. That's just it's my kind opinion. of it's kind of a double edged sword, right? Because you're kind of spoon feeding the audience a little bit in that moment by flashing back, but at the same time, like, would we remember that this is the witness because that happened at the very beginning of the episode where we last saw this guy, and so maybe we do need a little bit of reminder of who you know who who this is, this victim, and maybe they could have just had like a um an an uh, audio flashback right maybe that could have worked but um you know i i think that i i can see why david simon would be opposed to this and i agree like it's maybe not the smoothest way uh to remind the audience but i can see how it could be necessary so d d'angelo walks away completely shaken and it's clear that stringer knows how to send a message yeah yeah it's uh again like not a rude awakening for d'angelo but it's almost like he's becoming yeah he, there was a naivete maybe that he he didn't really fully understand the high stakes of the business that he's in and now he, he wanted has, to be in the game right exactly and now he has a better understanding of of the people around him and what they're capable of um but that's the wire that is the end of the pilot of the wire Hey, yo, yo, ho, ho, ho. Y'all niggas been burnt. Huh? Huh? That's what you got to say? Huh? This look like money, motherfucker? Money be green. Money feel like money. That shit look green to you? Got a dead fucking president on it. Nigga, I don't give a fuck about the president. That shit ain't money. He ain't no president. What you mean? Hamilton? He ain't no president. Nigga, is you crazy? Ain't no ugly ass white man get his face on no legal motherfucking tender seppi president. So, uh, what do you think? I mean, as a pilot goes, I think this is just doing a really excellent job of laying the groundwork here for what's in store. I think you nearly know watching this what kind of show you're in for. But I can also see how a lot of people could watch this and say, like, you know, there was a lot going on and. I don't know. It's it's a commitment to watch this show. I can see how someone at the end of this might think, uh, you know, I, I I don't know. It was um, you know, it's a lot to take in. It's scary. You know, it's a pilot like this is intimidating because it it doesn't like you said it doesn't really spoon feed you anything and it just brings you along for this uh, ride. But a good show does that. Because like by episode like four or five, you you start to really kind of get to know who these characters are, how they go about, and there are and a then, lot of characters, and right? there's a lot of characters, and it just like a lot of the time, like I I forgot like uh, I knew who Weebay was, but I forgot who Stinkum was, I forgot where like you forget who's who, but you remember the faces. But when you do a rewatch, like I kind of appreciated it a little bit more watching the pilot just because I knew who everybody was and I kind of, I know what happens and I, I, it makes you appreciate a rewatch. Uh, right. I think it's easy to remember yeah. the characters because um, like thinking back on it, right? Like at first I can see how it's difficult to remember who's who, but I, at least I think the show makes it a little easier by grouping the characters, right? There's groups and teams of characters. You have Avon's crew, you have this uh, low, low rise housing project crew, you have the codics, uh, you have homicide, right? Like you can carp um, make it easier for yourself as a viewer by, uh, um, what's the word? Car 
compartmentalizing. Uh, carpet, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's a mouthful. But by doing that uh, to this ensemble, that's how you kind of break it all down. Because this is a show about different worlds. And even within the world of the police, there's, you know, smaller worlds within that. I think it clicks. I think I think it does click. I just think a pilot uh, like this without any context is just – it's scary. But there is, there's still a, like a lot of very good things to attach to. Like if you're picking up on the nuances, uh, yeah, no, like how Jimmy just saying one thing to a judge could like erupt the whole system. Like, eh, like just how the story gets into play. But even if you want, uh, if you've never seen the show before, and hopefully we did take you through the pilot in a way that it's not that confusing, you will look at this, the first, you will look at it as like just chapter one of the first book. And right. how, you'll probably look at the season going like, wow, I'm amazed at this season. And you'll like, you'll think back to how it all started. Yeah. You know, I think I'm, I'm very impressed by how rich this world is that has been uh, created. I mean, obviously it's based in the real world, but there's just, you're right, a lot of nuance and just a lot of thought put into this that it just feels very lived in because the world is a complicated place and there are a lot of people. And so it just makes sense to fill this story with such a large group of people who have all different motivations and, um, and perspectives on their place in their worlds. Um, and context is, is interesting too, because they, they mentioned nine 11 here is, is uh, a part of the backdrop of this show. And so I think it's a very timely show in terms of the commentary on the war on drugs, the war on terror and, and the technology. Yeah. As, as the improving technology, right? Like I think the FBI agent tells them that the, the one camera they're using on the drug operation they're surveilling is like the size of a, of a pen, right? It's uh, at that point, you know, the, the tools are, are extremely advanced at that point. And uh, a guy like McNulty, who's used to very limited resources is, um, you know, practically watering at the mouth there for a chance to, to use some of this in the way that he thinks will make a real difference in, in the city. And also, even though they're, I think it's, uh, this was a chance for David, David Simon and Ed Burns to show you, like, the procedurals behind, like, actually catching uh, a criminal like Avon. But – and you would think that's all boring. And probably within the wrong hands, it is. It has but, to be a little educational, right? There has yeah. to be some points where they are informing you as a viewer, and it, that's where I think you get a little bit into the weeds with this show. But the characters are so rich. Like, it, like yeah. we, if we were introduced to a lot of characters in this episode, but we haven't met like, once again, you haven't met Omar, right? You haven't, you haven't met, and he's like really the the wild card of the whole show. Like, I encourage you to watch it because Omar himself, like, it, it kind of deals with that uh, morally gray territory where he does, like, he has his code, and then you'll see, like, over the course of the season, like, every all these. Uh, for lack of a better term, criminals have have this code. They don't do this. They like how they go about it is this way, uh, right? Because they have and, to, right? If you're going and to then be... someone else worse than Avon comes along, Marlo Stansfield, like Lord help me, like I didn't think a show like this would produce like a great television 
bad guy, but I would say Marlo Stanfield is in my top 10 at least. Like I, I would say someone like Homelander or Gus Fringer at the top, but Marlo Stanfield is like, you know, you get rid of a dictator because mm. he's awful, and then someone worse comes along, and you're right. like, oh, God. But no, you get to see how the community changes because of that, and it's so – like it's – I was not bored once by this show. I'll say that. You, yeah. would, you would think it would be – it's I could I completely understand. I also wouldn't recommend this to twenty year olds unless you really are interested in that. I would say like th- this is for an older audience, right? I like, think this is for a more mature audience that is going to take the time to think about the nuances of the story and you know really appreciate the stakes that are there that aren't necessarily in your face all the time, right? Because as we said with this detail, this really is set up as the one shot at this empire that is causing you know so much harm to these communities and it really seems like a very low odds that they're going to be effective at the outlook right there is kind of a a bleak perspective um and and tone to this so if if you just have to as a viewer that's why it, it involves more of an active viewing you have to remind yourself of what's at stake for each person and on a larger scale what are what are the stakes for the future of this city it's it's an amazing show and at least like it's worth it at least to see once yeah i think that it's a show that you should try but if you do just really try to give it your undivided attention you know it's not really a show that you're going to get everything out of it that you need to uh you know, if you're going to be on your phone or something, right? It's not a passive show. It's definitely an evolving show. Yeah, if you uh, miss something, if you miss an episode or you miss a chunk, you're like, whoa, I, that's when you have to rewind. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, there you have it, The Wire. Um, just another jewel in the crown of this very prestigious network. So, you know, we're going to be moving along here with another show that was maybe a critical darling, but didn't quite get the viewership needed for its longevity. Uh, I think it's one of these shows that a lot of people say just maybe ended a little too early, and that would be Deadwood. So that is next on our lineup, and uh, we'll catch you there at the next pilot. Follow us on Instagram and X, formerly Twitter, at Take Us to the Pilot. That's Take Us to the Pilot with the number two. Attention passengers, we've now reached our destination. We hope you enjoyed the flight and have a nice day.